got something a little different for you to put in your ears. There's no uh, streamed chat this week, and and that's that's my fault. I'm just busy and swamped, and things are crazy, and I'm I'm not I'm just not scheduling things well. And uh, I wanted to put something out. I wanted to put something together. So I rounded up a couple questions that haven't made the last couple recordings. And uh, I'm going to answer them here. So consider this like a catch-all random mishmash of uh, chat questions. Uh, different sound effects, obviously a different intro just because I'm trying some different stuff. Um, I hope you like this. I hope this is helpful. Some of these questions we've sort of covered elsewhere, but it's always good to get um, it's always good to get answers locked in place. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're um, writing and creating well and surviving whatever your season or month or week or day or hour or minute might be. Um, I'm doing the best I can. I look forward to resuming uh, regular broadcasting and and everything next week for sure um, thanks for your patience thanks for your continued support um, please please don't forget to check out I have two things for you to check out before we really get into this um, please remember that everything I do is supported by patreon patreon.com slash John helps you write better uh, for as little as two dollars a month you get a ton of stuff uh, the last couple weeks have just been crazy as we've detailed a lot of big stories and big narrative breakdowns, some good, some very not good, and everything in between. There's some stuff coming up ahead. There's a, a new poll out later this week. Um, we'll be covering John Wick 4. We're going to do uh, maybe a, an episode or two of television that really stood out to me. Uh, we're going to cover some interesting things in the coming weeks. Stay tuned for that most definitely. So that's item number one. Item number two, if you're looking for kind of long form, detailed uh, writing guides and material, like a walkthrough of how to focus on a thing or handle a thing, whether that's publishing or querying or editing or revising or how to navigate this idea or what this or that means or whatever, I'm going to encourage you to check out my newsletter. Uh, the Writer's Secret Weapon, which you can go get over at johnhelpsyouwritebetter.substack.com. Uh, it is free, but there is a subscription sort of um, subscription available, I guess you could say, where on the other side of that uh, very simple monthly paywall, you'll get access to very, very detailed uh, guides and walkthroughs for how to do damn near everything whether it's here's how to query here's how to revise here's how to publish here's how to use amazon here's how to market this that and the other loads of content will be going up there in the very very near future uh so stay tuned for that that is available at john helps you write better .substack.com. so uh thus endeth all the plugs let's go answer some odds and ends questions here we go <laughs> What do I call this? Question one? I didn't number these. These are just sort of all over the place. So first question, why would a writer need a writing coach? Okay, that's a great question. It's a pretty typical question, especially if you've, if you've been following the most recent uh, writing Twitter and book talk drama about the lady who's been charging 
uh, five cents a word, but also, you know, $2,000 for monthly mentoring, as well as 14000 or 19000 Yeah, that's, you know, with three comma and three zeros, thousands of dollars for her help you get published service. Um, if you've been following any of that, I just, uh, I posted it, I, I retweeted it on Twitter the other day. It's bananas. It's absolutely nuts. Um, and the question of well, why you would need an expert at all, why you would need help at all uh, came up. And this question always kind of sticks in me. It always stings me because I am somebody who wants to help writers. And I do offer, you know, not a $14,000 or $19,000 service. I'm somebody who genuinely wants to spend an hour with you to help you write better. And the, the reason I, I do it, and the reason why I think a writer can benefit from it is because there's so much information and there's so many things that a book needs, requires, and would benefit from, as well as most writers don't want to do a bad job of it. And there's a there's a real lack of education anymore in terms of how to do it. Like in school, people learn, okay, char- you know, there, there are worlds, there's characters, and there are plots. And here are the loosest rules possible about them. And then you go watch TV or you go read books or you read comics or whatever. And you, you get, a, you, you get a, a sense of what those things are, but not really the rules. And it, it gets worse when you start dividing into different genres. Because if you start looking at like romance novels, a hugely popular publishing space, the rules for what goes into a romance and how to write a romance and how to have two characters fall in love and, you know, what this needs and what this scene is and how to bring this together and all the recipes and things and stuff. Like, you can stumble into that. You, you can fall your way into that kind of by dumb luck, right? Like, you can have a meet cute, you can have a first opinion, you can have a second impression, you can have a fourth date, you can have a an earned romance moment. You can have all the things without realizing it's all the things. But by and large, it has been my experience over two decades that writers really benefit from somebody coming along and helping them. Not because they're stupid or not because they're bad, but because... You need resources and you need tools when you're writing a book. And if you can learn the craft better and then apply it better, you will have an easier time down the road trying to accomplish whatever you're accomplishing, whether it's writing a fantasy novel or a romance or just writing for a web serial or who knows what. You can develop whatever you want to create through a resource like a writing coach. A writing coach is... To me, not that dissimilar from a trainer at a gym, minus maybe the toxic attitude or the the number of abs, I guess. And the, a good trainer at a gym is going to not so much yell at you and, and bully you and make you feel weak or terrible, but a good trainer is going to get you there to correct your form and help you do the exercises better so that you get better results, so that you don't hurt yourself, so that you don't make things harder for yourself. That, I think, is the best analogy for what a writing coach can do. And while, yeah, you can go to the gym all by yourself and you can lift all the weights and you can get some results, but 
a lot of people benefit from that accountability. A lot of people benefit from that that kind of assistance, that kind of help and, and watching and repetition, as well as somebody who can answer questions, provide advice, give suggestions, build a better format for your workout, build a better format for your writing in this case. Writing coaches are there to help your writing improve. It's there to help train you to succeed in the future. That's why I think... Uh, the best thing any writer can do, no matter who you are, no matter whether it's day one or day 1000 or book one or book 45 bajillion, I think every writer would benefit at times from a writing coach, even if it's just a one-off thing where you want to sit and complain about publishing for 10 minutes. I think all of that is totally valid, and I think that's the role a good writing coach offers. And I think when you get into separating some writing coaches from other writing coaches, you start looking at the additional stuff they do. Like some writing coaches just sit and talk to you. They just want to kind of walk you through your thinking and help you schedule stuff. And that's fine. That's great. There's there's a time and place for that. But then there are other writing coaches like myself who fold in more opportunities. They fold in more stuff. Oh, you need somebody to help you with query letters? Sure. You need somebody to help you, you know, with your pitch? Awesome. You need somebody to help you edit your manuscript a page at a time, a chapter at a time, or something along those lines? Absolutely positively. But that's a thing I do. That's me. I, that is not a universal thing. Uh, the hybridization, the fusion of writing coach and developmental editor, I think really um, kind of sticks me in my own space sometimes because I talk to a lot of other coaches and they don't do half the shit I do. Uh, they're certainly not streaming and podcasting and recording all at once. So um, I'm in sort of this isolated, lonely space, but at the same time, it's still valid writing coaching the same way that, you know, a powerlifting trainer is different than the local trainer at your commercial gym. Skill and training matter. And I think when a writer is looking to improve and, and accomplish their goals, whatever they might be, they need to use all the tools available without shortcuts, without cheating, without anything like that. And some of the best tools you'll ever get are the help and advice of people who have trained in these fields. So that's why I think a writer needs a writing coach. Question number two, what are some things to keep in mind when formatting a manuscript? All right, we're going to divide this into two, two sort of sides, two parts of this. First, we're going to deal with the abstraction, and then we're going to deal with the practical. So let's deal with the abstraction first. Ideally, there are three major kinds of formatting you can do. There's the def what's called default formatting, which is pretty much you leave the margins and the spacing alone when it comes to putting your manuscript in Microsoft Word. It's just sort of the barest bones, minimum level of formatting. You want to make sure that you're not leaving any extra comments. You're not leaving yourself any big notes in the in the like in the middle of the manuscript where you just type in all caps oh my god i don't know what to put here you want to make sure you've cleaned the text as much as possible you've eliminated the comments or the feedback left by other people and you have you know just the the basic margins untouched the basic spacing untouched maybe double space it but it's it's as close to I didn't do any formatting as possible. That's default formatting. 99% of the time when we just sit down to write anything, you're going to end up using default formatting and not think twice about it. Second version, 
there's something called shun or shun. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. S-H-U-N-N. Shun formatting, which is essentially uh, the old stuff we learned in school, which is uh, double-spaced, tighter square margins all the way around. You can Google it in terms of what it is, but this is a step up in formatting to sort of homogenize everything no matter what. It tells you where to put commas, where to put periods, how to space things out, how to indent paragraphs, block quotes, all that. It is pretty popular. It's not bad at all. Um, it's it's straightforward. That stuff, by the way, is available at shun or shun.net, S-H-U-N-N dot N-E-T. Uh, we'll give you everything you need, including Microsoft Word templates to help you kind of get organized there. It's a nice, safe, middle-of-the-road level formatting. It will work in a pinch for the majority of things you need to format. Now, here comes the third flavor of, of abstract formatting, and that's the formatting specifically dictated by submission guidelines. So when you're going to submit traditionally or you're going to send something off to somebody uh, uh, online, like a, an online periodical or a journal or something like that, they're going to give you submission guidelines, which are basically a set of rules to follow for when it comes to how to make your thing look like how they want it. So that might they might dictate things like we want it double spaced, we want twelve uh, size twelve font, we want you know use Times New Roman, we want an inch margin top and bottom or whatever. They will dictate how they want the thing visually laid out. And typically, submission guidelines override all other kinds of formatting. Use those submission guidelines whenever you have them and follow them. That's what they're there for. They're not just there as suggestions. They're there to be used. That's the abstract. And I can't say for certain that all submission guidelines are created equal. A lot of places have very basic submission guidelines like, just send us something. But a lot of places also have submission guidelines that are very, very exacting. Like they want Courier Prime in 13-point font, uh, one-and-a-half spaced with uh, left and right one-inch margins. They want the first page not numbered. They want the name and page number in the footer. They, they have all these different little like bits and bobs and things. Submission guidelines are, are not created equal. By the way, if you're a publisher listening to this and you want me to, and you need submission guidelines, uh, just send me a note. I'll happily put something together for you. Um, that's no problem. But submission guidelines uh, take precedence over all. That's the abstract stuff. That's the in an ideal world view of things. How things more or less shake out on the practical side, though, is a different story entirely. Because a lot of writers don't really stop and think about submission guidelines. And a lot of people who accept submissions don't do enough to stop and think about submission guidelines other than to say, if you don't follow the submission guidelines, you will be automatically rejected. But they don't make those guidelines apparent. They just sort of assume that somehow everybody's supposed to know what they are. Here are some nearly universal basics that will get you out of most problems and they're not that difficult to do from a practical perspective. Remember, you're going to want to take your file, whatever it might be, and get it into a Microsoft Word readable format, whether that's a DOC or a DOCX. You're going to need that. I don't care what you're writing in, whether it's a Google Doc or Ulysses or Scrivener or this or that. Output it to a Microsoft format. OpenOffice is acceptable-ish, 
but by and large, don't send in your Scrivener stuff. Don't send in some rando mishmash text file. Output it to a Word document of some way, shape, or form, and it's going to make your life a lot easier. As for what that thing should be, how it should look on the page, you're going to want a font probably in the 10 to 14 point range. 12 is a nice safe bet. You're going to want a font that is more than likely one of the following. Courier. Courier Prime, Times New Roman, Calibri. Those are nice, safe. Arial's not too bad either, but I would steer more towards Courier, Times New Roman, or uh, Calibri if I had to. They're nice, safe choices. They're almost always in some part of submission guidelines. It's better to do it that way. And when it comes to the title... If you have your cover, please don't stick your cover on the manuscript. Use a title page, obviously, but don't like embed the the picture into your Microsoft Word file. That's that's not going to help you. Just just the text, please. You're going to want consistency in your page numbering. So whatever your page numbering, use it. Uh, most of the time, your two best options for page numbering are upper right or bottom center. And your page, your header or footer, respectively, most of the time is just going to be the page number and maybe your last name. So in my case, it would be Adamus 1, Adamus 2, Adamus 3. But for you, um, you might, might, maybe, kind of, sort of, also do the title in all caps, uh, slash your last name, slash the page number. But again... That's more of a, let's put, if we're going to do the header, the top of the page, page number, do that. And the bottom, if you're sticking to the footer, just do the page number. Keep it very, very simple. As for spacing, line spacing, double spacing is always a safe bet. One and a half spacing isn't too bad, depending on the font. But remember that as your font size gets bigger, one and a half spacing looks wonky. Uh, double spacing is almost always the best way to go. Beyond that, um, don't monkey around with things. Don't like slide all your indents over or if you're trying to do something visual with your text, like you need to, I don't know, create a, a waterfall effect in your paragraphs or you want to like change fonts because your characters are reading a letter or a clue they found in the mystery. Um, make a note. Uh, you can, you have the option of formatting it in your Microsoft document the way you'd expect the reader to see it in print, but you could also just as easily leave a formatting note to your uh, prospective submissions reader, though it is usually more common, especially nowadays, to have it formatted already for that reader, and then they can deal with it on a publishing end. Those are safe guidelines. Those are things to keep in mind. The two, if we're looking just for, hey, what do I need to worry about? Worry about your spacing, your line spacing, and worry about your font choice and font size. Readability is key. Now, I don't know if you want to go the extra, extra step and engage in what's called bionic reading. A lot of websites and things are shifting over to bionic reading to handle uh, readability, neurodivergence, comprehension, and that kind of stuff. Uh, bionic reading, which you can Google uh, and find out oodles more. It's it's popular online and it's slowly migrating its way into um, into print. 
but it's still kind of on the outs because a lot of the the more traditional traditional publishers look at it and it seems a little like a typeset error but you might want to consider uh employing some bionic reading down the road especially if you're going to work in long-form newsletters or blogging or something where you've got a lot of text on a screen but that is that's kind of a, a down the road sort of vibe but those are the things to keep in mind when it comes to basic formatting. Less is always better. Don't go overboard. You don't need 45 alterations to a document. Just put together some ideas and you're going to be just fine. Question number three. If I don't know what genre I'm writing and there's nobody I can ask, how do I figure out what genre I'm writing? This, I've put this question off for five, six chats. Because, frankly, I refuse to believe that there was nobody you could ask. Even it, So usually what happens is when somebody's like, who do I ask? You're looking for some kind of professional answer, and there isn't really a professional answer to give you. It's not about, like, getting the correct terminology 1,000 million percent correct, because most of the people who read these things don't know the terminology 1,000 million percent correctly. So you're not necessarily wasting your time, but you're trying to, you're making a thing harder for yourself that doesn't need to be made harder. Here's how you figure out what genre, even if you don't have anybody to ask. When you talk about the story, when you, when you answer the question, what kind of story am I writing? How do you answer it? Chances are you're going to stumble your way into using a word that is adjacent to or close to some kind of other genre. You might call it a mystery. You might call it a fantasy. It's the story of two people falling in love. It's got some romance in it. However you talk about your book, there's probably a genre word for it. Now, that's, that's enough. That's just enough. It's okay if you're just writing a mystery. You don't need to know that it is a modern whodunit or that it is a period piece uh, locked room mystery. You don't need to know the specifics. That's, that's okay. It's helpful to know that. Uh, it's nice to put that in a query letter, but it's not the end of the world if you just call your thing a fantasy novel or it's just a romance or it's just some science fiction. Like... It's all right to not know the subdivisions of subdivisions of subdivisions. No one's expecting you to know that. You can. It's, you know, whipped cream and cherry on a Sunday. But it's not like the be-all, end-all, end of the world if you don't. But the answer to the question is, what kind of story am I writing? And then take your answer and figure out... What genre, even at its broadest, it's an action story, it's an adventure story, it's a pirate story, it's the story of two people falling in love. Find whatever that story is, find a word that is mostly a genre. You can go on Wikipedia and look at genres, that's fine. No one's going to know, but boil it down to at least one word or phrase answer to what kind of story it is, and that's your genre. That's okay. That's fine. It's not the end of the world. I still don't th believe at all you don't have anybody you could ask. You don't have a friend. You don't have a coworker. You don't have a partner. You don't have a spouse. You don't have a, a, a beta reader. You don't have somebody you're hanging out with online. Like, you don't have anybody? Well, then come talk to me. Like, send me an email. Find me on social media. Drop me a note somewhere. 
sure, there's always something. There's always somebody you can ask. Next question. What are some reasons a publisher suggests or makes edits to a manuscript? I remember one time when I was talking to some people about traditional publishing, and I mentioned that there are times where a traditional publisher might suggest a title change to a book. They might want to call it something else. Or they might suggest a certain kind of cover or a font or something that the that the writer didn't intend. And it created such a shitstorm. An absolute, like, shocked level of, oh my god, what do you mean? They'll just change things? Yes. Yes, they will. I don't know if those writers who originally freaked way the hell out were upset because they were... Uh, because things were being changed and they assumed that meant the story was being changed like radically, like you write a science fiction story and the publisher comes along and says, nope, we're making it a romance novel. It, it doesn't really work like that. That's not what I mean. I mean more like in the course of telling your story, your characters go from A to B to C to D. A publisher might step in and go, hey, you know when they get to C, there's you know two bears and they fight? Well, let's change the bears to, you know, centaurs or something. The changes a publisher makes in the course of the narrative is generally because they think it'll be easier to sell or market if something gets changed. For instance, if you have... Now, some of these changes might be fairly small in scale. Like, hey, can we um, make it summer and not spring? For part of the story, that's not too bad a change. But you might see some more substantial suggested changes like, hey, can we gender flip these characters? Or um, can we please kill off the mom character at the end of the book? Or um, why, why can't it rain during the big climactic fight scene? You'll see some big changes. You might also see some some really radical stuff like, chop out the big plot twist all that stuff is fair game again it's not because the publisher thinks the writer is fundamentally stupid or something it's because the publisher thinks that making these changes affecting the story steering it this way or that way or or, or giving it a new veneer or a new design will make it easier for them to sell whatever it is writers sometimes really freak out about this. But it is part of the traditional business model. It's not so much designed to oppose writers being creative so much as it is, hey, it's a lot easier to sell a story that contains these elements and much harder to sell a story that contains those elements. If you have a beef with that, if you're listening to this and going, oh, that sucks, I don't want to do that, there are other avenues of publishing to explore, but understand there may be a kernel of truth to the idea that, hey, we got to change some elements in this story in order to sell it, because if you're writing something that is really outside the ordinary, overly complicated, uh, whether or not it's written well or not doesn't really matter at this stage, but it's more a matter of like you have plot twists upon plot twists and, and the story is is complicated and hard to follow. And then you're, you're adding a lot of similarly named characters on top of it. And there's just not a lot of um, easy to follow parts. 
even if you were to self-publish this because you want to maintain control, you might not see the audience uh, response to the degree or in the mean that you in the style that you want because the story is hard to follow. A lot of publishing, traditional publishing especially, looks to make the book, whatever it is, more digestible and easier to follow. And to do that, they often make changes. When it comes to a title or it comes to what the cover is, then yeah, you're, you're kind of doing the same sort of idea. What's going to make this more attractive to sell? What's going to help this, you know, get more units out the door as opposed to what is a, what is an idealized artistic representation of the writer's effort to produce this thing? Titles change all the time with about the same level of concern as, you know, putting on a fresh pair of socks. Don't, Please don't get hung up on the idea of, oh my God, the publisher is going to come in and change my vision. Yep, they are. If that's a problem, then publish it yourself. But understand that the more avant-garde, the more transgressive, the, the more poorly constructed, because you just want to maintain control, the 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 messier the book is, the harder time you're going to have finding your audience. Sometimes changes at a publishing level are necessary in order to facilitate an audience response that's, you know, not a dumpster fire. But fundamentally, all publishers make changes because they think, thanks to the changes, they'll have an easier time marketing or selling the book. That's it. It's very, very, very rarely... a a sense of like caprice or like I'm bored let's change things it's almost always for the benefit of sales next question at what point should a writer start their own discord oh boy okay um remember how a couple weeks ago we talked a lot about newsletters and if you really 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 needed a newsletter or not this answer is going to kind of go in that same direction, but I'm going to be even a bit harsher about it because you don't need a Discord. You don't. You writing your book, whether it's one book, a series, a trilogy, whatever, you don't need a Discord. You do not need to fabricate an entire community, staff it with moderation, whether that's automated or personal you don't need to convert all your readers to come online like that even if they're already in a lot of online spaces you don't need that you don't need to, if you have no idea what i'm talking about uh discord is uh, uh an app that allows you to produce and exist in online communities remember chat rooms it's like that only it's got some more bells and whistles it's this idea of we can congregate online and talk to one another. Now, for large-scale things, that's fantastic. For media properties, that's great. For writing communities built around a single purpose, it's marvelous. I have a Discord because I use it not only for clients, but also for writers who are looking to, you know, learn and grow. It's a place where I teach. It's a place where I lay out ideas. It's a place where I offer all different kinds of stuff. If you want to link to that discord to kind of check it out, go jump over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better. The, the whole point of a, of a discord is to gr create a space and grow a space where people do stuff, where, um, like-minded things, like-minded people get together. 
where like-minded stuff happens. And it's got a purpose. It isn't just like, oh my God, I have one because people like my book. There's a function to it. There's a utility to it. It isn't just like we're ticking a box. Discords are best when they are active and when they have people who use them and benefit from them, not just take up space, not just have one more space to kind of dick around instead of scrolling Facebook while at work. They're best when there's a tool and a function to them. If you can't provide that or if you don't want to provide that because it just sounds like too much and you're happier just writing books and putting them out, then do that. That's totally, absolutely fine. You do not need a Discord. If, however, after listening to all of this, you've you've still given it some thought and you're like, John, I totally want one, then just go make one whenever, anytime. But I'm going to tell you, just as a, a regular writer off the street who's producing all different kinds of stuff by themselves, you don't need one. It's not going to do you any good. It's just going to be one more thing that doesn't meet the expectation you have for it, and then you're going to get frustrated by it. Do not sweat it. Do not deal with it. Do not do anything about it. Just stick to what you're comfortable with and you're going to be just fine. Next question. Why are self-destructive writers praised? I want to make sure I'm reading the question right. It says praised and not glorified or deified because that's, that is the kind of relationship a lot of people have to writers who take their own lives or who... Um, in some way injure themselves or harm themselves long term for the alleged benefit, I'm making air quotes, benefit of their art. And as somebody who is uh, ashamed of and regrets not only being self-destructive, no matter how good it felt or no matter how much I thought it was making my life manageable, as well as being somebody who thought that the self-destructive artists of all flavors were people to admire because they they figured out how to shake off the pain and burden of life. Um, I, I don't entirely have a great answer for this question because I think they're praised because their death or their absence, however untimely, makes whatever work they're doing seem special, more rare, because going forward, they won't, there won't be any more. Uh, a lot more cynical people have said, you know, they go out on top because if they were to persist, then uh, their future work would kind of spoil their early work. And I, I don't know if I agree with that, because a lot of the people who were... Um, who became self-destructive even to violent ends were doing progressively better and better work over time. The, the whole point, though, is that I think it's praised in some circles because um, that whole idea of it's, it's better to, to burn out than fade away and kind of capture the moment is a big deal for people who feel lost in the shuffle or who feel overwhelmed by life. Uh, I'm somebody who still feels lost and overwhelmed in life. And um, I am not without my certainly very dark thoughts. One of the reasons why I stream and podcast so much is because it is something that soothes uh, and quiets some of those voices, frankly. 
But um, I think we praise those destructive elements because they feel passionate and because they feel like somebody made up their mind. They have singular focus. Good for them. I'm the other person scattered and all over the place. So if they see somebody who's got this clarity of vision and knows exactly what's up, even if it's negative is something to be admired, but there is no great joy in praising people who harm themselves to some degree, whether that's a more permanent concrete termination of life kind of thing or whether it's more of a an abstract thing like abuse or addiction or something there, there's nothing there's nothing to glorify in that because all of those things all those self-harms all those abuses all the termination of life there's a mess that you don't know about you know we we praise the the writer who you know writes drunk and edits sober and who can knock back so many cocktails at a party or the artists who fall deeper into drug addiction in order to ch- to channel their pain or something but what you don't know about that stuff is how the hangover is or what it's like to throw up so many times or what it's like to get out of bed on a day where you're not going to be in the studio or with a microphone and you've got to figure out how to make, you know, food on a $10 a day budget and maybe you don't have $10 or maybe you're worried about the next time the phone rings or the paranoia or the anxiety or the, just the plain old exhaustion. There's loads of stuff there you're never going to know. And... Sometimes that's by design. A lot of times it's by design because people who are progressively more self-destructive also seem to be pretty good at hiding it, as least as best they can until they, like the Allman Brothers, stumble out drunk and then fall off the stage. Um, I, was at, I was at a show where that happened. It was shocking. But the idea of self-destruction getting glorified, I think, has a lot to do with the expectations we place on artists, how we request and demand and are almost require them to be troubled in order to be creative. And when we equate trouble to creativity, we are setting ourselves up for some kind of failure, be it financial or social or psychological or mental or emotional or sexual, some kind of failure. The minute we demand or create this rule that says in order to make what we make, we have to hurt ourselves in some way to do it like that's that's not a recipe for sustainable success. That's a a great recipe for causing more problems than you're solving. But I, I think that's why we praise writers who do that, because it seems poetic, beautiful, tragic, emotionally evocative better than boring something like that it it's terrible i get it i understand i i can put myself in those spaces and in those places where a writer a creative a maker of things feels that harm is the best route through i get it far more than probably anybody knows i get it but that doesn't make it good and it doesn't make it right. It's just a it's a reality 
that we don't do enough to talk about. It's a reality that there are going to be people and there are people in this world for any number of reasons who find themselves to be more sensitive, more hurt, more harmed, more traumatized, more in need of support, more in need of love, more affected by things. And the the real travesty of it is that people don't exercise enough compassion enough care, enough time, enough space, enough, in some cases, financial help, social help, personal help, intimate help, mental health help, whatever. People don't give enough of a shit because it seems messy. Because, oh, I got enough of my own problems. And and that's what I think helps perpetuate this cycle. At least, that's what I think does it for me. It's not begging. It's it's not, you know, panhandling or anything. It's It's... It's pain and desperation writ large. I think more people need to be more considerate rather than just praise the the sloppy drunk who also happens to be a world-class talent or the addict who you have to rouse from nodding off or you find them the next morning on the floor deceased. I think more people in general should when it comes to all artists of all kinds, exercise far more compassion. Far more. I think it would really make everything better. Because a lot of those artists I miss dearly. They were important to me for one reason or another, and I miss them. That's why I think people praise self-destruction. Good question. Here we go. Let's do some more. Okay, let's see here what's on my list. Is there any value to a Twitter pitch off Twitter? And the answer is yes. Just because it's called a Twitter pitch doesn't mean it only can exist on Twitter. A Twitter pitch is essentially a short pitch of one to two sentences at most. And just like any other pitch... Anything of that size is going to have incredible utility because you can put it anywhere. If it's one to two sentences, you could stick it on some infographics. You can put it on Instagram. You can, you know, drop it as a tagline in a, in a podcast. You can mention it casually when somebody's like, hey, what's your book about? Just because it's called a Twitter pitch, don't get locked into the idea that, oh, this is the pitch I just used for Twitter. Just Use it briefly. Use it wherever possible. A pitch is a pitch is a pitch is a pitch. No matter how big it is, no matter how small it is, don't limit it to the one platform just because of the label on it. Great question. Up next, how many beta readers do I really need? I love the fact that it's really need because the answer isn't a lot. You need need one like bare minimum one, two would be great because that way you'll get a difference of opinion most likely. Um, I never understand the people who are like, I have five beta readers. That that to me just seems like you're flexing that you have that many friends available. I, I don't really see a value in an absurd number of beta readers because on one hand, it just means more information, maybe too much information, a lot of conflicting opinions, which can lead to decision paralysis when it comes time to figuring out what comments to deal with and what things to ignore. But I think anywhere between one to three beta readers is a nice, workable, functional, useful number of people. 
Uh, obviously, you're going to pay them. Obviously, it's a job. Obviously, you're going to treat them with some kind of respect and not exploit them and not just say like, oh, do whatever and let me know what you think. You're going to provide them a Google form or some kind of quick questionnaire in an email, something to give their commentary some kind of direction or focus or you know specificity that you can use in the revision process so that you're not just parsing out seven people who were telling you, oh, I really liked it, which gives you nothing to work on and go forward. The more specific you can be, the better, and the fewer number of people, the easier it is to be specific. I used to advocate for four as a beta reader number, somebody who's, you know, you're sure is going to love it, sure is going to hate it, and two people on the fence. I, I don't really think it's necessary for you to engage with the people you hate. Like, don't go out of your way to try and convert a hater into somebody who's going to love your work because it's often not worth your time and effort. Instead, I think one to three is just fine. Um, you know, pay them 15, 20 bucks an hour or a flat rate or, or something like that and, and just go on about your day. Like they're doing a job, help them do their job and, and move on with it. I don't think you need, you know, reams and reams of data because in the end of the day, they're just readers and there are so many other readers on the planet who will have so many other opinions and you can't account for everything. So just instead, pick a few and work with it. Great question. Love that. Now, up next, I've got uh, I've got two questions that are fairly businessy, and I don't think I've ever covered them before. So we're gonna certainly you know try. First question, businessy. How can I set a reasonable sales goal for myself? That's an awesome question. First, we have to talk about the the elephant in the room, and that's the assumption that you're not gonna sell at all. I don't know if you're gonna sell. I don't know how you're going to sell, whether it's going to be all up front or wait a while and then a, a sale here and there, or if it's going to be measured out over the course of days. I don't know. I don't know what you're marketing. I don't know how you're marketing. I don't know what's going on. But I know there is a there is a chance that there will be times, multiple times in fact, where your book is not selling because it's not showing up in the algorithm, because it's not getting enough effective marketing. For whatever reason, it's just not it's just not selling. You have to be okay with that. It is not a reflection of who you are. It is not a reflection necessarily of how the book is. Because there are going to be times where the algorithm just can't possibly promote everybody's book. And there are going to be times where you're not marketing because you're doing things like sleeping. Or because, you know, you post something on Facebook on a day where it's particularly busy and everything just kind of gets lost in the shuffle. There are going to be times where you don't you don't sell. And a lot of people assume that the minute that happens they're sunk and they're done. So they set these sales goals for themselves to like overcome it. Like, "Oh man, when I, you know, if I need to sell 100 in my opening weekend and that way when it drops I won't feel so bad." And depending on how many people you're marketing to and how you're marketing and, and a number of other factors outside of your control, a hundred people might be, you know, a hell of a lot. It took me years to get a newsletter subscriber list past 50 people. It took me years to get past 25 patrons on Patreon. Like this stuff takes time. 
So setting an unreasonable goal, I think, is an all too common pitfall for an awful lot of creatives because we're coming at it the wrong way. We're looking at it in terms of, well, if my book is $5, let's say, I'm making up numbers, my book is $5 and 100 people buy it, in theory, that's $500 before taxes and fees. And that's, you know, if that happens every month, then I'll be okay. But that makes a lot of assumptions that, you know, you're going to get a hundred people different every month because the people who bought it in, you know, May don't need to buy it in June or July because they already bought it. So be careful with those expectations, especially if you're starting your expectations from that rearward facing position about how much money you need or how much money you'll make. That's going to lead you to unreasonable sales goals because if you say, oh man, I want to be able to pay my mortgage from this book and my book is $5 and my mortgage payment is $1,200, that's a lot of sales. That's, you know, hundreds of sales. That might be unreasonable for somebody who has maybe 10 friends on, on social media that they're active with and maybe, you know, not the best marketer. That's an unreasonable thing. So instead, we come at this from the other direction. Start by making a very practical list of the number of people you are 80 to 100% confident will buy the book. This can include a parent, a spouse, a partner, uh, a roommate maybe. people. There should be somebody somewhere who you can count on, even if it's just one person. Get that down, because that's one sale. One sale is still not zero sales. So there's your definite list. How we market to them is usually emotional leverage. Hi, Mom, could you buy my book, please? Hey, honey, how are you? All right, my book's going live. Would you mind buying a copy? Because, you know, uh, I want to test the, the algorithm. That, that's always a great go-to excuse. Hey, honey, can I have $5 so you can buy my book? It's, it's okay to do that. Like it's, it's not skeevy or scammy. It's, it's a sale and you want a sale and you're allowed to have that dopamine. So, you know, have your spouse or partner buy your book. It's fine. It's totally fine. You can save them on shipping and, and hand them a copy after Amazon orders it or whatever. But count on some number of people being definite sales. Now, let's step away. Start making a list of people who are probably purchasers of the book. Those are people who you would say are 55 to 80% confident you'd sell it to them if they knew. This could be friends in your writing group. This could be your, your social media circle. This could be just your friend group who kind of knows you're doing a book but doesn't necessarily like know it's done yet. People that if they received some marketing, you could reach. Let's assume for the sake of argument, we're counting on two people a parent and a spouse in the definite column. And let's say we're counting on 10 people in your probably definitely going to buy column. So now we're up to 12 sales. Now you could stop at 12 sales because that way you are, you are done counting on the human beings you know before we have to step out onto that limb for social media into the risky winds of who knows how this is going to go, right? And that's okay. You could stop at 12. 12 is great when you consider that the majority of self-published books, the majority of books outside of traditional publishing at all, tend to sell somewhere between 2 and 10 copies lifetime. That's how many self-published books are out in the world. Think about that for a hot second. Yeah, you could stop at 12, and 12 would be great. 
And if you did 12 in another two months and then 12 in another two months and then 12 in another two months, that's that's not too shabby. And usually in between there, you'll get better at marketing and it'll grow. But definitely counting on 12 is pretty rad. But 12 is maybe not enough. Maybe you want to push it a little bit. But we're going to count on these 12 and we're going to use these 12 as a base to grow. Now, overly ambitious people will take whatever their number of definites and probabilities and double or triple it to aim at a lifetime sales goal. So over the course of the whole book's lifetime, which is generally measured in weeks or months, not years, usually weeks is a safe bet. Some of the more pessimistic people will put it down to days, but there's nothing wrong with weeks or months, three months, six months, nine months, something like that. I wouldn't go any further than nine months. Take your take your definites, take your probabilities, and double it isn't outside the realm of possibility because that accounts for an equal number of people seeing your marketing and making a decision to sell or making a decision to buy rather. Tripling it has always felt a little risky to me, but I don't know if that's my personal pessimism or not. But you know, if we count twelve and then triple it to thirty-six, that can be a lot. It's possible. It's certainly possible, depending on how big your your groups are or how active your reach is or whether or not you're part of a a trading sharing community where we're encouraging swap for swap purchasing, which is not the most ethical process, but certainly something that does generate sales and income. I think doubling it is a reasonable sales goal. I think Taking a number and playing small, not so small that you're self-deprecating, not so small that you're assuming the worst case, but taking a number and remaining small so that you're able to either work up to achieve it or exceed it because it's possible you'll sell 40, not 36, just as it's equally possible that you'll sell 15, not 30. But as long as you are surpassing your baseline numbers, everything's gravy. I know it's not big and huge. I know you're not going to be able to pay your mortgage off that first weekend of book sales. But at the same time, give yourself room to be surprised by how well it goes. Rather than assume bad shit's going to happen, give yourself a chance. Take your probabilities, take your definites, maybe double them. Aim for that. Anything past the maybes and definites combined is excellent. Really, any sales greater than like, one, great. One sale is still good. Don't don't freak out if you're if you're in the one sale club, but one sale definitely gives us a chance to aim for two or three or four. Setting triple digit numbers and expecting them off the bat, off the bat that's the trap of traditional publishing. Traditional publishing loves to set these sales quotas and say, "Hey, we got to get this book to sell this much," and if it doesn't. In addition to yelling at the marketing people who aren't doing their job, whatever that might mean. They're also going to blame the author, and if the sales continue to not reach some made-up guess of a number, the author gets dropped. That's a thing that happens. It's pretty shitty. Now, sometimes it's warranted. A, A writer stays on the books but doesn't produce a single sale or doesn't move or bring in any kind of income can be a liability business wise. But at the same time, like to treat people only as only as a means to make a number go up on a screen, uh, that's that's pretty garbage. So how do I set reasonable goals? Count on the things you can count on and then give yourself some wiggle room. But keep it small so that you can surpass it. And then it's an exercise in expectation management. 
Don't freak yourself out. Don't spend money before you have it. Don't assume it's going to be huge and don't assume it's going to be small. Just wait and see what happens. Best advice I can give you. All right. Is this my last question? Am I up to my last one? All right. Let's see. Let's see what we got for this last question. Why are some editors accredited or licensed and others aren't? So there's a there's a couple different issues here at play. First of all, let's be clear. Some kinds of editing, particularly technical editing or nonfiction instructional editing, like, like material editing, not fiction, uh, requires a level of editing because of the specificity and technicality of the work. And there are countries, particularly Canada, uh, that's one, the one I'm most familiar with in terms of its licensing and accreditation programs. But the, uh, the European Union has its own licensing factors. I believe the United Kingdom still does. Uh, there are countries across the world who do require some kind of or, or allow for some kind of certificate or award system or recognition or degree, uh, not so much in a collegiate way, but more just like in a I accomplished a program sort of way. And it can give that level, uh, they can give that editor a certain level of cachet or respect. In some places it's required depending on what kind of groups or unions or guilds you want to join, but it's not always. In the U.S., uh, most licensing is a non-factor. You can be an editor and not licensed. This is um, good in some cases because it's Everybody's got a different style of editing and licensing to homo homogenizing licensing isn't the same as like trying to homogenize all your plumbers and making sure every plumber knows how a wrench works. Editing can be a much more fluid and dynamic process. I'm pretty sure that's a plumbing pun now that I think about how fluid it is, but that's neither here nor there. The point is the U.S. doesn't always require licensing and it um, can lead to some people being real shitty like... Uh, that lady who's claiming to help sell or publish a book for fourteen thousand or or, or nineteen thousand dollars, depending on what mentorship tier you want to uh, take with her and her bullshit. But um, you also run the chance of working with somebody like me, who is not technically accredited in a Canadian like paper on the wall sort of way, but. I've got two decades of experience, I've got degrees in college things, and I've got loads of experience editing hundreds of books, and it's about picking and choosing how you're going to work with your editor. Are we counting on the fact that they have these magical degrees that somehow qualify them as an expert? Are we looking at their... Uh, body of work? Are we looking at their the relationship you have with them? Some combination thereof? I know a lot of writers uh, put their shingle out as an editor, and they mean it mostly in a copy editing sense. I'll help you with the basics of grammar and maybe some story notes along the way, and it's very sort of loosey-goosey because the idea is we're treading on the concept of editor. I get to call myself an editor, and that evokes some idea of what traditional editing does, and that's that, that lends a level of respect to what I tell you, and sometimes that's legit, and other times that's total bullshit. And it's one of those situations where you're not really going to know until you're knee deep in what's going on. Do I think licensing is a bad idea? No, I think it can be unnecessary. I think it leads to a lot of people trying to collect degrees and certifications like Pokemon. And it 
uh, creates people who are very, very aware of the ivory tower approach, the in theory approach, the well in class I learned approach, but they lose some sense of the practical. They lose that sense of, you know, ideally, yes, the world should work this way, but the real world says it works that way kind of vibe. I, I don't I don't think it's bad if, if you're looking to uh, engage with someone and you want to make sure they're not full of shit and good at their job. There are many ways to do it. I think accreditation and certification is maybe one of them because I know plenty of people who have college degrees who are absolute scumbags. And I know plenty of people who are professionally licensed in a number of fields who I wouldn't like be within 100 feet of because I don't trust their body of work. I think for everybody, it's a personal sort of thing. I don't think it suddenly makes the editor better to have. And I don't think it suddenly makes the editor worse to not have. I think it's far too individual. And I think most important, more than the degrees, more than... Uh, even their body of work is the rapport you can have with them and whether or not you believe they can actually fundamentally help you accomplish your goal. I know a lot of writers want to like offer a sample to, you know, can I have a sample of your work to see if you'll vibe? Uh, that's a trap. That's a huge trap because really what that sets up is can I at least have some free labor and then I still get to say no which is not how this works and not how this works. You wouldn't, you to go back to our plumber, you wouldn't bring your plumber in and say, hey, can I watch you change, you know, the valve on something to see if I like how you plumb before I hire you? It just doesn't work that way. So rather than uh, further insulate yourself in bullshit and say, well, I need a sample to see if I like you, just have a fucking conversation with them. Have multiple email exchanges, call them on the phone, send them a text, you know, Hit them up in a Zoom thing, FaceTime them, Snapchat, whatever the fuck kids are doing these days. Talk to them. See if you dig them. See if they can be helpful to you. And then make your decision. Is that it? Is that my last question? That is, in fact, my very last question for the day. So, I want to thank you all so much for checking this out. I appreciate your flexibility with uh, a new format and a new thing. And I will look forward to talking to you again next week for even more stuff, uh, more podcasts coming, of course, this week. Just, you know, we're going to throw some new stuff out. I do want to point out that coming in the very near future are uh, longer form uh, exclusive podcast materials. If you're curious about that, uh, stay tuned because I will give you highlights about that as soon as I get all the bells and whistles set up. But know that a sort of a membership tier, exclusive subscription, uh, ad-free. I know we're ad-free now, but longer form gives a gets a possibility of ad rolls. Uh, longer form, higher professional, better quality stuff uh, will be coming soon. So stay tuned for that. Until then, uh, keep writing, keep creating. I love you very much. All power to all people, and I'll talk to you soon. See you.